Good morning. It is so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Russ Wells. I am the, uh, one of the associate pastors here at Houston Church, pastor of Family Ministries. And uh, this is my, my first year here at Houston Church. It wasn't too long ago that I was sitting in seminary. And uh, I, I want to take you back to my first year at seminary, okay? First year at seminary, one of the classes that had me all kinds of nervous, all kinds of anxiety. <clears throat> Some of you, maybe you know a little bit about seminary, and you're, you're, you're thinking I'm talking about learning the Greek or Hebrew languages. Uh, yeah, Greek and Hebrew were tough. They made me question whether or not I was going to survive seminary. They made me question whether or not I was going to survive my marriage at times. But I'm not talking about Greek and Hebrew this morning. Um, Maybe systematic theology. I mean, that was a class where I'm like, whoa, big words. I don't know about this. Uh, But it turns out those big words weren't quite as intimidating when I got there. And um, I had a lot of fun in that class. Um, Those aren't the classes I'm talking about. The class that I'm talking about is evangelism. Evangelism. What's evangelism? Uh, Well, that actually comes from the Greek word that's going to be in our text, euangelion, and all that means is proclaiming good news. So a big scary word for something that's really simple and awesome, proclaiming good news. I mean, this is the most important thing, uh, task that our God gives us to do, to proclaim the good news to those in the world who don't know about Jesus, Um, that by grace we can be saved from our sin and separation from God, that we can be with God for eternity. I mean, this is awesome news. This is great stuff. You'd think I'd be fired up about this class, and I was, but I was scared. Maybe y'all, some of you guys also have the same emotions when you hear um, that word evangelism or sharing the gospel, as we tend to call it. Um, How many of you guys are squirming in your seat right now, maybe sweating a little because you're afraid that the application point at the end is going to be, you need to go out and share the gospel? And I'll give you a hint, it is. (laughs) But we, and yes, it is a little scary, and that's okay. Uh, But I hope that when when I'm done with this sermon and after after we've traveled through this text together, um, you'll be so excited about sharing the gospel um, that you won't care about whatever nerves you might have. I think part of my nervousness going into the seminary class was thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going into ministry, I'm going to be with all these potential pastors, and I'm going to be the only one freaked out about getting on the streets and sharing the gospel. Come to find out I wasn't the only one. I mean, by nature, sharing the gospel, um, it is a little scary. Um, I mean, as we bring this incredible gift to a person who doesn't know Jesus, I mean, you're rocking their worldview. You're asking them, to make a change in the whole direction of their life, leaving behind um, what they once were and how they once lived. Uh, it's countercultural. <laughs> it's okay to be nervous. Um, but man, it is so awesome when God uses you to share the good news and you see God work and somebody comes to know the Lord in that. So this morning we are going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about sharing the gospel And we're going to look at a passage this morning that provides what I think are some really helpful tools to equip us to share the good news. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. We've been traveling through the book of Mark. We're going to take a break for a few weeks. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you have a one of the Pew Bibles, it's going to be page 1253. It's about three quarters of the way through in your Bible after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reason it's sitting right there is it's, it's the continuation 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is uh, he was crucified, died, buried, ra- rose again, ascended into heaven, and he sent out his followers through the power of the Holy Spirit to share the good news. And the story of Acts, the gospel spreading, spreading like wildfire. God was on the move in an incredible way. Uh, he sent out faithful men and women of God, and uh, there was some cool stuff going on with the church. And one of the main characters early on is, um, or partway through the book of Acts, is a guy named Paul. Um, Wow, God used Paul to do some great stuff. He went on uh, several missionary journeys, which started initially in and around Western Asia, um, and then eventually extended into Europe. And uh, we're going to be picking it up. Uh, Acts chapter 17 is on the second missionary journey. Um, Paul has just gone into Europe, so the gospel is just reaching Europe for the first time. He's got some traveling buddies, Silas and Timothy, and they're in Thessalonica uh, for a little while. And all is going well, but then some people really don't like this good news that they're hearing about, so they went after um, the gang, so they left there and went to Berea. Berea is a great example of um, people receptive to the word of God and the church growing, and good things were happening there, but those, uh, but those angry men from Thessalonica went after Paul and Berea, so he took off, and uh, he left Silas and Timothy behind, and he went to Athens. And so he's in Athens um, without his partners, um, and that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17. So um, before we actually get into the text, Athens. Okay, I, I know many of y'all probably don't know much about Thessalonica, don't know much about Berea, but Athens is a name that sounds familiar. I think we know a little bit about Athens. What comes to mind? What images do you have when you think of Athens? You know, recently there, there was an event that I think comes to a lot of our minds. We can show the picture now. Um, the Olympics. The Olympics were just recently there, and they were there because that was the, the location of the first Olympics. So those athletic competitions started out there. Also think of uh, the great philosophers, Socrates. I mean, this was the cultural center for philosophical thought, Athens. Um, there's also incredible architecture. And you see some pictures up there of some of the images. Um, there are some cool-looking buildings uh, in and around Athens, and um, uh, quite a sight to see. Now, the Athens that Paul went to looks nothing like uh, um, the Athens we know today, but it was also quite different than um, the Athens that I had pictured. Uh, you know, I know of the great philosophers and all that. This was some 400 years of when Athens was in its prime. It was, it was more like a large town at this time, but it was still kind of the cultural hotbed for philosophical thought. So people would go there to just talk about whatever the new, the new uh, topic of the day was. That was Athens. Well, let's join the. Let's look at our text now. Um, what we're going to see in Acts 17 is Paul's going to give um, an incredible sermon to the men of Athens that gives us some great, um, great things to consider um, to equip ourselves. Um, but I think it's also important to see what came before and what came after this sermon. So first, we're going to um, we're going to look at what came before. And before I go any further, let me let us pray. God, this is your word. We thank you for it. You are the author of this word, and you speak to us through this word. I just pray that it is your word, it is your word that comes loud and clear today, not my words, um, and that you're able to change lives and encourage people um, to have boldness and an urgency for the gospel. Amen. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. 
So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day those who happened to be there. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, the first thing that jumps out at me is right there in the very first verse, right there in verse 16. um, I see a gospel urgency in Paul. I mean, he has an urgency. And to be quite honest, um, if we miss this, then everything else that we're going to talk about today is worthless. Because unless you have an urgency for the gospel, unless you really care and love deeply lost people, it doesn't matter. You're not going to take that next step to share the good news. You need, we need to start seeing people with the eyes that Jesus has, with the, the eyes that God equips us to have, that only the Holy Spirit can truly give us. Because sometimes it's hard to see people as Jesus does. Um, but I see that here in Paul. It says he was waiting in Athens, and his spirit was greatly upset when he saw all the idols. Greatly upset. So this is reminiscent of how greatly upset God himself was when he saw idolatry throughout the Old Testament. Idolatry. What is that? What are we talking about here? Um, in Athens, you know, we already talked about those beautiful buildings. Um, those beautiful buildings, um, unfortunately, what Paul saw in them was they were shrines. Um, they were things, man-made objects um, that these, these men of Athens had set up to worship whatever divinity they wanted to worship, uh, whatever seemed to suit them best, and they would actually worship a whole bunch at the same time because they want to cover, cover their bases, get a little bit of protection here, a little bit of protection there. This one specializes in this, so I'm going to focus on this one. This one specializes in this, so I'm going to focus on this one. Um, they were just creating objects of worship to try to meet their needs, and it was nowhere near worship of the real true God. Paul saw what was going on in Athens and it just broke his heart because he knew how far away from God these people were with these idols. So he had a gospel urgency. We're in a mission here at Houston Church, uh, an exciting mission to love Jesus Christ, live Jesus Christ, and lead others to Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, I love coming to this place and gathering with all of you we have amazing things going on here. We just finished Wednesday nights. That was incredible. A lot of great classes going on. Um, men's breakfast, uh, VBS is coming up. I mean, I could just, all of these are incredible things. But if we ever get to the point that we look at our calendar and all we're ever doing is coming here and gathering here, um, how are we going to have a heart for the lost people? We aren't even with lost people. We aren't with people that don't know Jesus And so I look at what the second thing that I see that Paul does here is he has this urgency for the gospel and he goes to the people, okay? He goes to the people. It says, first he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day those happen to be there. So what are these places? Well, the first it says he went to the Jews, um, went to the synagogues. Paul went on a lot of trips, Um, And every time he would get to a new place, his pattern was to go to the synagogue first. Why would he do this? Well, that's where he has the most common ground, right? I mean, the Jews, 
they have the Old Testament. They believe the Old Testament. They were looking for the answer to the Old Testament, which is Jesus Christ. So if they can go, if Paul goes into the synagogues, he can start there with people who are already acknowledge Yahweh, the one true God, and um, fill in the gaps by telling them about Jesus. It's a good place to start. So that's where he went first. But it says he also went into the marketplace every day. The marketplace. Okay, so what did that look like in Athens? This is going to be like Walmart, Iron Tree, Beechler's, and Sid's and Johnny's all rolled into one. I mean, this is where all the people were. Um, they weren't just going to get groceries for dinner. Um, they were gathered together, spending time together, discussing, having their philosophical debates. Um, and if you want a strategic place to go to tell people about Jesus, you go to the marketplace. That's where the people are. So that's what Paul did. He was very strategic about where he spent his time and where he went. Um, we have to think strategically. And friends, I, I'm not at all saying, don't come to all these great things that are here at Houston. Please, don't hear that at all. We want you to come. But um, if you need to make capacity in your calendar, in your schedule, to go to where the people are, um, yeah, cut out something from church. Um, we need to be where the people are. So he went to the people. And how did they react? Okay, they were clearly curious. You've got these philosophers. Um, they were also uh, very uneasy about what they heard. How do we know this? Well, they accused Paul in two different ways. And what, what, is, what are they really saying about Paul? Um, they said they were conversing with him and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Foolish babbler, okay. Um, I can picture babble. Now, the term that was used here, um, imagine the imagery of a bird going around and just picking up seeds from everywhere. That's what they're talking about everywhere. They're saying, you and your big ideas, it's just a collection of a random idea here, a random idea there. You've just tossed it up all together, and it's not an educated philosophy. Your ideas are not as smart as ours. Your gospel does not make any sense. It's illogical to think this. You're stupid if you believe any of this. Does any of this sound familiar? Have you ever heard any of this in our culture? So that's what they're saying, foolish babbler. And then second, this accusation is a little more harsh. Um, they said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Now, that's a dangerous one. Socrates was actually executed in Athens for a similar accusation. It says, but... Uh, a proclaimer of foreign gods. Said the text said that he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. What's going on here? Uh, some of the scholars, um, modern-day scholars, believe that the men in Athens, they didn't understand what Paul was talking about when he said resurrection. The, <clears throat> the term that um, would have been used in Greece that day for resurrection was Anastasis. Almost sounds like a female name, Anastasia, right? So uh, some... There's the suggestion that they were thinking that Paul was actually um, telling them about some guy named Jesus and his friend Anastasia and how they were just two other divinities. And um, so they were confused. They didn't, I mean, their interest was piqued, but they didn't know what Paul was talking about. Terms are important. Terms are important when we share the gospel. Um, I know it's important for me to remember that all the time. I get so used to these church terms and these words that make sense in our circles here, and we go out to people who haven't been in church, and they're like, wait, what? Have you been born again? What do you mean by that? 
Or what about um, telling him about how Jesus is the Son of God? Wait, hold on now. You just said uh, that there is only one God. You're talking about God the Father. Now you're talking about Son of God, and he's also God? That's going to be some, some explanation, and we're not going there today because that's a whole other sermon. Um, or here's, here's one of my favorite ones. We remember Jesus by eating this bread, which is his body, and drinking this cup, which is his blood. Okay, I'm not going to that cult because they're a bunch of cannibals. <laughs> terms are important. It makes a big difference. Paul would get an opportunity, though, to clarify his terms, and I love what he does in this sermon. So let's... Oh, before I get to the sermon, a few more verses for you, picking up in verse 19. So they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming, for you are bringing some surprising things to our ears. So we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. I just want to point out before we get to the sermon that there's a theme here. First of all, they're taking him to the Areopagus, and that could either be a a physical place, Areopagus, or a group of people, Areopagus, like saying, we're going to the Senate. Are you standing before the people of the Senate or going to the Senate floor? We don't know, but the philosophers were all there at this location, the Areopagus. But there's a theme in these verses. There's a repeated word here that's pretty important. It says, may we know this new teaching. It says, we want to know what they mean. These were philosophers. They desired knowledge. They existed to get more knowledge. So what Paul would do in his sermon, which looked different than the other sermons he's given, was he, he, he very intentionally built a bridge in this sermon to satisfy their desire for more knowledge. I think that's, that's one of the really important things that we can do when we desire to share the Gospels. How do I make a bridge so that I can connect with that person, so that they care what I want to say, so I can get a little bit of buy-in, so I can earn the right to tell you about this crazy thing that, called the gospel that I think is the best news that will change your life forever for good. We've got to build bridges, and that's what Paul's going to do. All right, now I'm going to read the sermon. I'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit from there. <clears throat> So Paul stood before the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man, he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and the fixed limits of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move about and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So since we are God's offspring, we should not think the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and imagination. Therefore, although God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. There's a lot we can unpack from this, although I'm sure it just gave a few minutes to give. Um, I love what Paul does, and the very first thing that jumps out to me in this sermon is the way he started. What does he do here? Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. Uh, talks about how he was walking around, um, and in the meantime, while he's walking around, I'm sure he's examining his culture and he's learning his audience. But he notices, I mean, we talked about, we talked about how this is idol worship. I mean, this is repulsive stuff. Paul's walking through, and I mean, we talked about how it grieved him to no end, how, how this was stuff that would just, um, I mean, some of it was sexual, moral corruption type stuff that he's seen in these, these um, idolatrous things that they had everywhere. Um, but he doesn't just jump in there and, and shut them down. He affirms common ground. Yeah, that's right. He went, he looked at idolatry and was able to find common ground. I see that you are very religious. You know, he, he pats them on the back for being devout. I mean, that's a good thing. They are devout. Devout. They are devout. Not devout in the right thing. But he's going to use that um, to help him bridge to what he hopes that they will be devout for for good. Um, this is important. Uh, I mean, how do people respond when you immediately jump in there and say, you have got a big problem. You are all kinds of a mess. Let me tell you how we can get this all fixed. Yeah, that's the good news that people want to hear. We need to remember the good news isn't about making bad people good. The good news is about making dead people come alive. And that needs to ground us as we approach people because we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And Paul affirms their common ground. And so they keep listening. So Paul affirms common ground. What does he do next? Well, the next thing he does is he goes through this long laundry list about who God is and what God has done. Why is that important? Why does he do this? Well, first of all, remember he knows his audience and they want to know about this this God that he's talking about. So he he helps them know God first. Um, What are are the things that he says? Uh, He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. That communicates God's power, to, power and sovereignty. He created everything. Um, Lord of heaven and earth. He's in charge. He sets the rules. He does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need our efforts. Um, unlike your other Greek gods that you have been building temples for, our God is so much bigger than that. So he's setting the stage by saying powerful important things so that they know who God is and what he's done. Another reason I think this is important is um, our gospel presentations, we often begin with the bad news. We talk about sin, and that's an important part of of the gospel, and people need to understand that. Uh, But a lot of times we're in danger of just presenting a Genesis 3 to Romans 20 gospel. Genesis 3 to Romans 20 gospel. What does that mean? Well, Genesis 3 is when sin entered the world, and Romans 20, the final verse there is, if your name is not in the book of life, then you will be thrown into the lake of fire, which means you're going to burn in hell. So we're telling people, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, and if you're not, capable, you're, if you're not careful, you're going to burn in hell. 
That's true. That's a huge part of the gospel. Absolutely, we want people to kind of get the kick in the pants and to know that because this is serious stuff. But don't forget Genesis 1 and 2. God created the entire heavens and the earth. He created everything. He created all people and he set humanity as the prize of that creation because he loves us so desperately and he wants to be with us in relationship, perfect fellowship, to enjoy paradise with him. That's good news. And the, after, you know, the verse in Revelation 20 about people burning in hell, it immediately paints the picture for those who, whose name is in the book of life that they get to participate in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no more weeping, no more mourning, no more pain, and they get to enjoy fellowship with their creator as vice regents over the creation for eternity. That's good news. We can't forget that as we present the gospel. So after giving knowledge of God, he transitions by saying, and this God that I've helped you know, he's not far away. So he tells them, not only do you have knowledge about God, God doesn't want you to just know about him. He wants you to know him. And he's about to tell them how they can know him. But before he gets to that, Paul does something very interesting. He digs deep into his memory verses, and he pulls out a couple here. Um, verse 28, 29, it says, For in him we live and move about and exist. Bible gurus out there, who can tell me where that passage is in Scripture? For in him we live and move about and exist. Anybody? Oh, uh, set you up. That's not in Scripture. It's not in Scripture. And then the very next thing it says, and some of your poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Uh, let's, let's throw that slide up with the quotes. Um, what Paul has done here is Paul is, um, he's quoting some of their poets that they hold, hold very dear, and he's found truth in their culture. Um, Epimenides, the Cretan. Yeah, you can see his quote there. Uh, for in, in thee we live and move and have our being. And then the, the second one is from Eridus, the, Sto- the Stoic poet. So once again, he's affirming some of the words in their culture, even though the, it's not Christian at all, but he's able to, to see how there's a yearning for God there, and he's going to take that and transition to the gospel. How does that apply today? Well, our modern-day poets are found in song. I love song. I love a lot of these songs that... Uh, that Jeff was just leading us in. But I tell you what, there's a lot of songs out there that we would not let anywhere near this stage. Uh, But I bet we can find some truth about God in that. Kanye West. There's a name I never thought I'd use in a sermon. (laughs) I I asked my wife to help me find some good songs because I'm a little out of touch with these. But um, apparently he has a song called Jesus Walks, um, which is catchy, but please don't Google that, at least not in church, because it's very explicit. I was with one of our college kids. He looked up on his phone. He's like, yep, not going to play this one. Don't. Um, but Jesus walks. It says, God, show me the way because the devil trying to break me down. Show me the way because the devil trying to break me down. If I know someone that's listening to Kanye West, I can say, wow, that's an interesting song. He's crying out for, for God to show him the way. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. Because that's how God shows us the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. What about Brooks and Dunn? He has a song called God Must Be Busy, which goes on about how all the pain and suffering, and he even mentions a tornado in Oklahoma. God must be busy to take care of the details. Crushing. I can only imagine people in Nepal right now. But that song is an opportunity to tell people, no, God cares about each and every one of us. And while I know you're experiencing pain now, 
There's going to be a day where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. Let me tell you how you can know that. We can use these things in our culture as bridges um, to connect with people and then to move on to the gospel. So in Paul's case, these two poets help him establish the fact that God created everything. He's in charge, and we belong to God. We are all of God, his people. And that's where he moves into the gospel that, that we tend to know of. That's when he ends, inserts a lot of these gospel truths that we tend to learn. He talks about the need for repentance, to turn from their ways, their selfish ways, to God. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Talks about judgment. Uh, talks about the resurrection. But you know what I, what I find interesting in here is he, as he presents this, it's nothing like any of the gospel presentations that I've ever been taught that I've ever used, and that I think are particularly helpful. Why is that? Why did Paul present it in this way? Um, Did he miss out on things? Is this not the whole gospel? Well, one thing that we need to keep in mind is he spent time with these people. When you do that, you can insert bits and pieces of the gospel and move all from there. You don't have to give the entire gospel presentation all in one sitting. He started in the marketplace. He started inserting gospel pieces at the beginning of his sermon, and he's got more time with the people to continue with them. So I think that's why we don't have the entire gospel presentation right here in Acts chapter 17. Another thing is Paul knew his his audience. We got to know our audience when presenting the gospel. Um, Let me give you a few thoughts about methods and techniques. I've been, I heard a seminar recently that really put some of this on my heart, and um, I just think it's so helpful to know. First of all, you need to know a method. You need to know a method because, I mean, that's the nuts and bolts for helping you walk through what the gospel is. Uh, I'm not going to go in depth in the sermon about what a method looks like, but some, some popular ones out there um, for spiritual laws. The bridge to life illustration. That's a good visual of, of being how we're separated from God. God's over here, but the cross is what bridges the gap. Um, for the visual learners, that's a good one. You know, steps to peace with God. Romans Road. You just memorize the key verses in Romans, and boom. Uh, for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin of death, death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For his grace, by we have been saved through faith. Now I jump to Ephesians, but whatever. Um, it's good to have a method. We need a method. Uh, but I would say it's kind of in the same way of my first year uh, preaching class, okay? I hope that y'all are benefiting from my sermons, my sermon right now. I hope you're growing from it. I hope you're enjoying that. But I promise you, if I was in my first year preaching class, I would probably get an F for that, for that class. Um, Justin would get Fs for my first year preacher. I never heard Birch, Burge preach, but I almost guarantee you he would have gotten an F too. Maybe not, I don't know. Um, Chuck Swindoll would have gotten a lot of Fs as well. Why is that? Because in the first year preaching class, it was so mechanical. A sermon must have this illustration followed by this statement of need, followed by this preview, and then point A, B, and C, followed by this, that, and whatever. And if you don't say it exactly like this, I'm going to knock points off. So frustrating. Do you know why they did that, though? Um, you have to learn kind of the nuts and bolts behind something. And then once, you, once it's ingrained in your, you know, you know what you're doing, then you can take the next step 
and use liberties to, to move by the Spirit. Um, and that's how Justin every week is able to come up with a different sermon, with a different style, style because he knows the foundation, um, but he's able to be led by the Spirit in that. Gospel presentations. You learn one of them, it sounds so mechanical. Um, but you need to know the nuts and bolts before you're able to walk with people and give the presentation. Now, um, second point. While you need to, to know a method, we also need to be aware um, that the way people are thinking is changing. Boy, that's frustrating. Um, some of the things that have worked long before, while they will still work for some people, because God uses all sorts of methods and all sorts of techniques, uh, people are changing. Some things are different. Um, to give an example, in my evangelism class, I had to go do these interviews with people, and to, I wasn't sharing the gospel per se, but it was just kind of find out where they have a dialogue and find out where they're at. And so I talked to them about, you know, this is you know, thoughts on heaven and um, how likely is it that you would go to heaven if you were to die today. That's, one of, that's always been one of the best lead-in statements to a gospel presentation. How certain are you that you would go to heaven or, or be stuck in hell if you were to die today? That works. That worked for me. worked for a lot of us. The response I got was, why would I make a decision so selfish just on based, based on going to heaven? What? That's crazy talk. Um, but the way people, some people are thinking is, that's actually a selfish motive. I wouldn't see that. Now, of course, part of it is probably the picture we paint of heaven. I mean, if you picture clouds with harps and wings and all that, I'm not signing up for that. Um, but we know that heaven, being with God for eternity, is so much better. Another response I got is, yeah, I'm just not interested in the salesman pitch that you're giving me right now. I've heard it. Let's move on. Salesman pitch, huh? I'm offering you the greatest gift ever but we live in a consumer society where consumerism is growing and growing and the gospel is becoming just another message. Yikes. That's rough. Um, but that's what some people are seeing. So how do we avoid that? Um, excellent book by a guy named Dave Kinneman, uh, who kind of studied the younger generation, how to reach him. Here's what he wrote. The consumer gospel that promises a life of happiness from now until eternity is wearing thin for street-smart, networked young adults. This gospel of personal fulfillment is either bolted onto the busy lives of 20 and 30-somethings as a lifestyle improvement app or dismissed as a cheap marketing pitch. Either way, this gospel is powerless to help the next generation resist the riptide of consumerism, individualism, and materialism that is the dark side of our modern culture. We need to rediscover the Bible's grand narrative and teach an all-encompassing, multidimensional gospel by showing how the life and death of Christ brings reconciliation with God, neighbor, creation, and self. Young adults will hear the call to live as a prophetic sign of God's coming kingdom. Uh, could you change the slide to the postmodern modern questions? Um, there's a lot of talk about modernity versus postmodernism. I don't even know what that means. You would think modern would be now, but it's not. Apparently, it's previous. If you're younger than mid-30s, then you are postmodern. If you're older than mid-30s, um, you're modern. And I'm 36, so some mornings I claim modern, some mornings I claim postmodern. I don't know. 
But uh, it's just showing there's the shift in the questions that are being asked. Uh, the studies have shown that these are kind of the questions that people care about uh, and what the difference is. You know, in the, in the past, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Well, now postmodern folks are thinking, how can I get through today? If I can't feed my family or get some water for dinner tonight, I don't care about your good news. Is Christianity rational? So that was, that was a theme in modernism. You know, poster child was Spock, you know, thinking rationally. But the new question is, do you care about me? It's all about relationship. Not that it wasn't before, but this is, these are just generalizations. How do I know there is a God? Prove it is their ultimate meaning. Are Christianity's claims valid? Is Jesus the only way to God? You know, we live in a, in a society now that says, you, you can believe whatever you want, you can believe this gospel message, but you also need to acknowledge every other message out there, and they all need to coexist. Is Jesus the only way to God? Is the Bible accurate? Does the Bible address real life? And the answer is yes, the Bible does address real life, and we need to show that, we need to demonstrate that, we need to work that into our gospel presentations. Younger people are, are more and more being interested in justice, and if your good news doesn't include justice for the impressed, I ain't got time for that. Um, God cares about all suffering. He cares about eternal suffering. He cares about temporal suffering. How do we demonstrate that in our gospel? So if I frustrated you all, at first I said, go get a method and work on a presentation, and now that I'm saying there's, there's challenges and they're not working like they used to, and what am I really trying to say here? Could I see the Tim Keller quote? Tim Keller, I think he was helpful for me. He said, there's a way of telling the gospel that makes people say, I don't believe it's true, but I wish it were. You have to get to the beauty of it and then go back to the reasons for it. Only then, when you show that it takes more faith to doubt it than to believe it, when the things you see out there in the world are better explained by the Christian account of things than the secular account of things, and when they experience a community in which they actually do see Christianity embodied in healthy Christian lives and solid Christian community, that many that many will believe. So what I think Keller's saying here, what's helpful for me is, yes, we still need to learn those presentations. We still need to use those presentations. But if people are, are, are not as open to that, we need to get buy-in. We need to build bridges as we show the, the beauty of kingdom principles, the beauty of a God who loves us desperately, a beauty of God who does care about justice. And when we have buy-in, then we can come back around, tell them about sin and their need for a savior. Um, we just need to kind of rethink our, how we're doing things, and it's not going to be the same every time. I've run a little long here, but I do want to finish the text, and we've got a quick video clip to, uh, um, to help show some next steps. How do, they, how do the men of Athens uh, respond to this good news message? Verse 32, now when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul left the Areopagus, but some people joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I can only imagine how Paul, frustrated Paul was seeing the looks on their faces. Sounds like a lot mocked. Others kind of humored him with curiosity, and he left. But then... Some joined him and believed. We never know how God works. The Holy Spirit is the one 
who's in, uh, in control. Our job is to be faithful and to present it. Let's see the, last, the next slide there. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one that, that changes lives, and we need to leave it up to him. Um, and you'll be amazed at how God can use you. Uh, even if you step all over your tongue and think you make no sense, um, if God wants to change a life, he will. So I think there are some, some really helpful things in this message, some principles that we can use um, to carry on. You, you see some of them there. Um, I hope some of these principles really stood out to you. Um, yes, the gospel is scary, but it's so important. Um, I know I'm honored to be able to share the gospel with people. Um, do you all have the, the, urge, the burden for the lost, and are you excited to share God's good news? Do you want to be equipped to share the good news with people? Well, I'm glad you all asked. Um, <laughs> um, we have a great opportunity coming to Houston Church soon, and, and I'll let the video speak about that for a second. I've been filled with him. I know what he is like, and I know what he can do for me. Do you want to live a more abundant Christian life? You need to make sure your heart's right with God. Otherwise, you won't be ready. Are you ready to witness to others? If they don't get it from you, who are they going to get it from? The Christian Life and Witness course will show you how. Our greatest joy is to know him and to make him known. I thought the classes were amazing. And it was quality. It was the word. It was presented well. It was easy to understand. These classes just give you a way that you can share to your friends what he's done for you. The Christian Life and Witness course is a way for you to recharge, renew, and revitalize your faith. It also helped give me a stronger assurance of my own salvation. Because as I went through that, I said, yeah, the Holy Spirit has really taken me through this. The course covers five key topics, beginning with a look at the effective Christian life. James says, be doers and not just hearers of the word, right? Lesson 2 explores how the victorious Christian life can overcome temptation and adversity. It was more than just sharing the gospel message. It was getting your life right with Christ first, too, because that's important. Learn how you can be a powerful witness to others by yielding to God's will in your own life. Then learn how to help new believers start a lifelong walk with Jesus Christ. It taught us how you can personally witness to somebody in a very non-threatening way. Finally, you'll learn to lead other Christians to a better understanding of God's Word. Every piece is so well organized and so well thought out that it's a wonderful plan for walking someone through salvation. The Christian Life and Witness course is open to anyone 13 and over. It prepares participants to become counselors at Franklin Graham Festivals, youth events like Rock the River, and Will Graham celebrations. But I didn't fully know that I was going to heaven or hell or wherever I was going. So I just decided to come on down because I felt really in my heart he was calling me down to really to find out the truth. Come to Jesus. Let him forgive you. Let him heal your heart. But you've got to trust him. And you've got to do it by faith. Come on. There's nothing more rewarding than leading others to a relationship with Jesus. This course can show you how. She brought the exact person for me to counsel. She lives in my neighborhood, and she was just in tears. She, she was, she's going through the same thing that I went through at her age, and it's just so cool to see how God works. These names are names of all of the kids I prayed with today. They came forward to either accept Christ or recommit their lives. 
And that's what the classes did. They got you excited to go out and win the loss at all costs. All right, so there will be our, the Franklin Graham Festival is coming to Oklahoma City in August. We'll talk about you hear more about that later. The Christian Life and Witness course. Um, you don't need to be volunteering to be a counselor or anything else to attend this course. Let me encourage you to no matter where you are in your where you are in your faith, come. We are one of several host sites throughout the OKC region that will be hosting this course. It begins not this week but next week. Um, three different weeks. You don't have to go to the same place every time. If you're not available on Monday because uh, we'll be Mondays. You can go to the city on a later day in the week. Um, even if you can only come once or twice, let me encourage you to just come um, because this is, inc- this is great training from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association that'll be here. Open for 13 years and up. Uh, this weekend, though, they're having a special deal in the city um, called FM419. Come talk to me or Jay and Samantha for the, the student junior high and high school, um, and that is still a poss- that's available as well. Um, Invite your friends. Get the word out. Invite non-Christian friends and non-Christian friends. Uh, you know, there's a story of a 13-year-old boy uh, like 20 years ago that attended one of these Christian life and witness courses with his dad. His dad invited to come. Um, the kid said, sure, why not? His favorite football player was going to be at the crusade, so what, you know, why not? And um, this 13-year-old kid was in this course, and he heard the gospel, and he recognized that he needed to make a decision to turn to Christ. And so that very day, uh, he gave his life to Christ. And that kid's me. Um, the gospel changes lives when the words are presented. Uh, I'm excited for the opportunities our church will have to share the, the gospel in our community. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and you've given us the greatest gift possible that your son Jesus Christ entered into our world, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died on a cross so that we might be with you eternally. Lord, give us courage and give us wisdom to share this gospel message with others. And may it all be for your glory. Amen.